today's workplace podcast disclaimer, JT Wilson. This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's Workplace Podcast. Welcome to Today's Workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. Welcome to today's workplace. Thank you for joining us for a discussion about some very interesting developments that have been taking place in the post-pandemic workplace. Today, we're very excited to welcome to our show, Jimmy Robinson, a highly sought after partner in one of the nation's largest law firms, where he has built an incredibly successful labor law practice, guiding employers through a variety of traditional and emerging issues related to unions and union organizing. Jimmy, it's such a pleasure to sit down and talk with you today about a post-pandemic phenomena in the workplace that I'm not sure everybody saw coming, the increase of union activity in the U.S. workplace. You know, Jimmy, we go back a long way, and I know you've done a lot of work um, advising employers involved in union activities. But before we dig deep into that topic, I'd like you to tell us about your background and your professional journey and how you've been able to build that reputation for being among the very best labor law attorneys out there working with employers and unions. Sure. Well, thank you, ladies, for having me. I want to say that from the very beginning, it's always a pleasure being in the company of stars and uh, women who build strong shoulders so the rest of us can climb on top of them. So we really appreciate that. And you guys are are just, you know, some amazing leaders and uh, mentors and just advisors in this field. So I want to say thank you for that. My practice kind of evolved into labor law. It was a, a interesting journey. I mm-hmm. uh, went to Hampton University, uh, go Pirates, Yay. home by the sea, undergrad, <laughs> great HBCU, number one. Um, I see, I'm outnumbered I- here today, <laughs> <laughs> but I did, but I did bring my Rattler cup. There you go. There you go. We get some HBCU love. Um, And then I went to, I stayed in Virginia. I'm from Talladega, Alabama and stayed in Virginia and went to Women Mary Law School. And I loved that experience at Women Mary. And I swore up and down from the very beginning that I was going to, you know, be a prosecutor. 
I wanted to go in and just be that big prosecutor and take that journey up that prosecutorial chain and get on the bench somewhere and be a judge and keep going. And um, I, I did that. My third year practice, I interned at the Portsmouth Commonwealth Attorney Office. Party Down P-Town is what they called it. And I was amazingly excited. Um, they had a third year practice. I was able to go in there and try cases. And it wow. was fantastic. They gave me an offer. And I said, this is, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. And my roommate, Stephen Diamond, who I love to this day, said, you know, kind of talked me down and had a real life conversation with me. Said, boy, you know, you grew up poor. You want to stay poor for the rest of your life. It's a great job market. And, you know, you got some talent. You should really not sell yourself short. And I was like, God, what are you talking about? I'm going to be a judge and all this stuff. And he was like, no, no, you need to do something more talented. And he pushed Every, me. Everybody needs a friend like that. So you're very fortunate. He pushed me and, and he was right. And I interviewed and got a number of different jobs and, and was very fortunate. But I was a, you know, scared country boy from Talladega. And so I couldn't go to the big city. I had, so I ended up going to the little big city in Roanoke. <laughs> so <laughs> my speed. I uh, love some Roanoke. It was my speed. I still love some Roanoke. But it had enough big buildings. I felt comfortable. And so uh, I practiced there for a while and loved it. Just had an amazing mentor there, Rabbit, Simon Delanor, Robert Smore. He was just fantastic. They embraced me. It's a fantastic firm. And they pushed me and taught me how to look and think about things differently. And then my wife decided that she was not going to, she was my girlfriend at the time. I, you got to move to Richmond. So I said, she said, I'm going home to DC. And I said, please stay in Virginia. And so we <laughs> compromised and um, came to Richmond and I worked for a firm. And that's where I first started my labor law life because there's an attorney at that firm, Clint Morris, who is amazing how things come full circle. Clint, I hired Clint. He hired me at the time. Now I hired Clint to come work <laughs> at Ogletree in the sunset of his career. He just retired last year. So he taught me labor law. I learned how to really get into it and understand the challenges that companies faced when employees are demanding the type of dignity and respect that they didn't feel like they were getting on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my journey into labor law. So as we delve into this specialized area that you've become an absolute powerhouse in, we want to understand what's your view of the state of unions in the workplace when you entered the practice? Wow. <laughs> that was, um, I, I uh, you know, so it's about 25 years ago, right? And so Bill Clinton was president and, wow. um, <laughs> right? and, and isn't that right? Um, yeah. The job market was good. As I said, graduating out of law school, wages were going up. There was a sense that people were actually accomplishing things. And all of those things are important because we saw in real time 25 years ago, the beginning of a nice precipitous decline in union organizing. So elections were not being won. 
like they had been in the past. If you go back and you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you'll find out during that late 90s, early 2000, there was a constant decline in the amount of elections won by union when they were organizing and trying to uh, become the bargaining unit of a company. So they weren't winning as much. Companies were able to make a case and say, hey, you know, give us a chance. Let, let's really talk about what's going on. Why are you so upset? Why do you feel like you need a third party to come in and be your spokesperson? Why can't we do that? So we saw that amazing decline in organizing. Uh, and we also saw an increase in the dignity of, uh, of the employee. And, and there was, it's, it's interesting because there, there was a push at that time to give a little bit more. And I remember specifically when I was graduating from law school, you know, before I started, we got an increase in our comp. So you're like, what's going on? And, and, mm -hmm. and that's very similar to how we feel now, right? Because there's this big push uh, with law students getting an increase in their comp and we saw at that point in time that those professional jobs were taking off and some of these employees felt who were in the factories, who were in the everyday, who were, make, who were essential workers, right? Mm -hmm. Seeing everyone leaving them behind. So there was this precipitous decline in union organizing, but there was a chasm that was being established bigger and bigger at that time. So that's how it was when I first entered. And so union organizing was a really interesting, nice uh, uh, part of my practice. And, and I'm sure we're going to get to this, but during that time, I remember having a case where the local union decided that the employees on the ground decided these national organizations aren't really doing what we need them to do. This is why we're losing uh, consistently. Why don't we just separate from them and become our own established union? Wow. Um, and we saw the beginning of a lot of that movement. Yeah. Okay. You know, we will we will delve into that a little deeper in just a moment. But for our listeners out there who are not familiar with unions, can you break down for us the series of events that take place when an employer is facing um, unionizing efforts? Absolutely. So we, you know, always uh, that that's a great question, uh, Barbara, because when you're trying to have a conversation with clients, your employer, and they are just been hit with a petition. Um, we'll talk a little bit how we get there, but they've just been hit with a petition. They're like, how did we get here? What happened? You know, we, we're, we're paying them greater. You know, at least we're competitive. What happened? And so what happens in a, uh, for an employer is that if you have a group of employees that are outside of management. So they're not binding the company. They're not the managers or the supervisors. Um, you know, they are the essential workers for that company. Some people may refer to them as the rank and file employees. So those rank and file employees 
are working every day. And oftentimes we see differences in how they're being treated. It could be that the supervisor isn't responding in the way that they should respond. It's they're not giving them that hello. They're treating them as if they are uh, not people, but just workers, that they don't have a family themselves to take care of, that they don't have children that they have to feed and clothe and put into schools. But they're just saying, you need to get this widget done. And that sense of resentment builds. Uh, it could be simple as having someone who's worked with a company for 30 years, they retire and then uh, you know something happens to them, they pass away and no one in the company mentions it. It's not on the board, oh, John Jenkins passed away and here's his obituary. None of that stuff is there. And the employees take notice. They take notice that John gave everything to this company and didn't even get a mention on the board. We need to make sure that we have people who care about us and they're responsive to us. They're gonna allow us to take the necessary breaks we need to take care of our family members. They're not gonna give us points when we're sick. They're not going to promote someone and bring someone else here. They have to, you have to actually stay with the company and go up the ranks to be promoted. They're not gonna bring someone in off the street. That's how they say, you're gonna bring someone off the street and pay them $5 more than what you paying me. And I've been working with this company for 10 years. So we see all of that uh, just bubble over, um, Barbara. And after that, they start talking and getting together and maybe someone calls a union or maybe someone says, hey, you know, when I was working at XYZ company down the street, we had a union and we didn't have these issues. And so the conversation begins and the whisper campaign begins and then they start meeting. I don't know why they meet at a holiday inn, but they all start meeting at the holiday inn. Um, and, um, you know, back in years when I first started practicing, I can't believe I'm saying this, but, you know, the first sign was that you would see maybe a flyer on the floor or someone, mm -hmm. a supervisor or someone sweeping up and they find this little ballot on the floor. Mm -hmm. um, now, because everything is electronically, you may never know until you receive uh, a petition. So they get organized. They believe that, you know what, there's enough people who are interested in having us speak on your behalf and advocate for you. So now let's approach the National Labor Relations Board and get a petition and say, we want to be the official representative of the rank and file employees at this place. They are part of a bargaining unit um, at this place. And we believe that together, we will make a bigger um, stance and a bigger difference than separated. So they filed their petition. And once they filed their petition, then it's almost like a, a, a political campaign. The company's on one side, the union's on the other, and both of them are fighting uh, for the attention of the employee to make sure that the employees say, no, choose me, no, choose me, no, choose me, no, choose me. And then they have an election and then whoever wins, uh, either it's the company wins and the company says, hey, we're gonna make things better here or the union wins and the union says, we're going to advocate for betterment on behalf of you for the company. Okay. Well, well then how does the National Labor Relations Board figure in all of this? And, and, and 
what have you seen actually in terms of the board's focus and impact over the years? That last part is a doozy, Belinda. I mean, the, the President Biden has boasted about being the most pro-union president in the United States history and that he's committed on passing um, labor's number one legislative objective, which is um, the Protecting um, Rights of uh, Employees Act, um, Protecting the Rights to Organize Act. So that's called the PRO Act. So that, the, the National Labor Relations Board, even though that hasn't come into place yet, that's very important because the National Labor Relations Board is implementing a ton of concepts contained in the PRO Act through some regulatory reform and some case decisions to actually implement this change. We want to make sure we do everything to protect the employee and their right to organize. And how the National Labor Relations Board comes in, just, just some of the basics after I've kind of gotten that off because you guys need to buckle up because it's about to be a wild ride with the NLRB. But let's start about who they are. So the, yeah. the National Labor Relations Board is the organization that oversees union activity and employee rights. So it investigates unfair labor practice complaints made against both employers and the union. People don't realize that, but and the union. But it started back in 1935. So the mm -hmm. uh, National Labor Relations Board was formed in 1935 uh, to help enforce the National Labor Relations Act, which was also enacted in 1935. And so the National Labor Relations Act is the law that allows employees to join together and participate in organized activities such as uh, protests and strikes with or without a union. But it primarily focused on private sector employees who work at companies that do business across state lines. And so under the National Labor Relations Act, employees can choose a person to represent their interests and to conduct union elections. And their employer, uh, as well as the union, must follow um, mm -hmm. the labor uh, relation practices. So the National Labor Relations Board is like a court. It's like the Supreme Court and all the courts and one that really oversees all of these union activity and enforces employee rights. Right. So what right are we buckling up for, just so I'm clear? Well, you know, <laughs> there is a lot of reform going in place. Back in, in the 70s, there was just a lot of reform going on. And, you know, I, I designed a class for the University of Richmond School of Continuing Studies about labor law for generalists. And we, we kind of went through the whole idea of what happens in labor law. When was it at its peak? And so in the 70s, there was this huge labor law reform. And then in the early 2000, 2008, there was the Employee Free Choice Act. Um, and today there is the PRO Act. And in each one of those terms in the uh, labor law reform, all of the traditional labor ones like buckle up, here it comes. And then in the employee free choice, I buckle up y'all, it's the employee free choice. You gotta, and now it's the same thing. But what we have that's a little different is that we have a board that 
feels as if it has a mandate to correct some of the challenges that occurred over the last four years that mm -hmm. eradicated some of the protections, what they call long-standing precedent, uh, board precedent, um, that were viewed as some protections for employees in the workforce. And so the board feels as if it needs to reestablish those protections and to expand some of them, to make it easier for unions to organize, to make it easier for um, unions to get their contracts, to put greater penalties on companies for organizing efforts, the unfair labor practices during union organizing campaign. This board has made it clear that we will advocate um, for union organizing. And, and it's been an interesting um, uh, approach, especially since COVID's um, been in place. And, and so anyway, I've, I've answered that question, but it's, I can go on and on. You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E dot com.